really lovely to have so many people with us this morning to have to get extra chairs. So not many, many churches have that joy. And we do look even more cosmopolitan than usual, which is absolutely wonderful. I'll add my welcome to Anne's and just say, just join in as much as feels comfortable for you. Um, we do have some opportunities to use first language as we go through, and that's very important to us here at Hillhead. We are just starting a kind of a week looking at aspects around harvest. Um, you may have found on your chair as you came in a sheet like that, which you are invited to take away with you after the service and just have some ideas to ponder through the week, but no compulsion either way. So let's listen to some words from Proverbs. <clears throat> Honour the Lord with your substance and with the first fruit of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Our opening hymn this morning, God in such love for us lent us this planet. If you don't know the words, hopefully you'll recognise the tune. And if you're able, you're invited to stand as we sing together. to God in prayer. I will lead us in prayer of adoration and confession and then we will join together in the Lord's Prayer and we invite you to say that in the version and language which is most natural. So 
I'm expecting a beautiful melody and mixture of languages this morning because I can see at least six or seven different nationalities and languages already without even trying. So let's come to God in prayer. Let's pray. God, maker of all things, we give you thanks for the makers of things, concrete or abstract, in our world. Those who make huge machines, build power stations, erect wind farms or construct reservoirs. Those who make tiny instruments used by scientists, doctors and researchers. Those who sort the material we drop into recycling bins and from it make new things. Those who sew clothes, make coffee, mop floors and clean toilets. Those who teach, write software, print books and work in libraries. Those who dance, sing, paint, sculpt, act. Those who produce and direct television and radio, journalists and presenters. Those who care for loved ones and those who care for the loved ones of others. Those who serve as politicians, public servants, and in the emergency services. And those we never even think about, but whose labours are known to you. God, forgiver of all things, We admit to you now our own shortcomings and ask your forgiveness. For the times when we have carelessly exploited the material world, wasting resources or carelessly discarding things of which we have grown tired. For the times when we have, consciously or otherwise, exploited those whose work we depend upon. For the times that we have considered ourselves more worthy or less worthy than those with different skills and gifts, saying, well, they're only, or, well, I'm only. For the things we never even think about, but perhaps we should. God, sustainer of all things, Forgiven by you and restored for your service, help us to offer you the best of our labours, whatever they may be, and to work together for the inbreaking of your kingdom, for which we now pray together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever.
I'm going to show you a photograph of something on the screen and I want you to see if you can tell me what it is. A house. It looks like a house, yeah, sort of a house. Church. A bit like a church. It's actually not a house or a church, but it looks like both. A barn. A barn. Yep, that's good, Wendy. It's a barn. Any specific kind of a barn, do you think? Tithe barn. Yeah, thank you, Brian. It's a tithe barn. Were you going to say tithe barn as well? So does anybody know what a tithe barn is? Does anybody know where you might still find a tithe barn? Wiltshire. Yeah, the few far south, um, south of England. Mostly in Norman, northern Europe, apparently. Um, Germany, Austria, places like that, Bavaria, you will still find tithe barns and the tithe barn was where at harvest time everybody would bring the tithe of their crops now who knows what a tithe is heather knows <laughs> yeah well, somebody up in machine as well yeah so a tenth of what they'd grown a tenth of their grain or a tenth of their apples or a tenth of their onions or whatever it was they would gather it up and they would bring it and they would collect it up in the tithe barn. And some of that would go to the priests. Now, this is way back when everybody was a priest, when everybody was a Catholic that this started. And the priest didn't have a garden, so he couldn't grow any food. And he didn't have any money, so he couldn't buy any food. So he would get his fruit and veg from the tithe barn. But the tithe barn was also there to support poor people people who didn't have enough to eat, either because they couldn't grow it or because they didn't have enough money to buy it. And it's kind of from that tradition that the harvest festival, as we know it, emerged, that people would bring from their gardens or their fields crops and then they would be either distributed or if you were a Methodist, they would auction them off after the Sunday evening service and, and uh, go to help other people. But there are other kinds of offerings. What's this one? What's that picture indicating? A cup. A cup. Yes, Bonnie, it is. It's a big cup. What's in the cup, do you think? Yeah. It looks... Oh, goodness me. Catholic in the making. It looks like blood. You're quite right, Bonnie. Yeah, it's, it's wine. It's deep red wine that looks a bit like blood and can represent Jesus' blood. So, wow, another theologian. There's too many clever people in this church. Yep, so there's a, there's a cup with some wine in it. What else is there on that picture? 
Carl? Some bread. Okay. So when would you have bread and wine? Anybody? Communion. Yeah, okay. I know it's an obvious question, obvious answer. So if you went back a way, way back, when people didn't have money, lots of money to buy things, and when people put things into tithe barns, they would actually bring the bread. They didn't buy it in shops. So people would bring some bread, people would bring some wine, and it would all be collected up at the back of the church. And then just before the communion, it would be brought forward to the altar for the priest to bless it. And I just love this image of like everybody's brought a tatty bit of bread. Or if you lived in the big posh house, a nice loaf. And everybody's brought some wine or some juice or some water. And it all gets put together and the priest would then bless it. And if you go to a uh, Catholic church or an Episcopal church, probably an Orthodox church, that procession still happens, even though the bread and the wine all comes from a special shop. And another kind of offering with one of those round pounds that's just going out next week. Um, I couldn't find any pictures with Scottish notes and coins, which was really frustrating. So I had to settle for English notes with coins. But where does money fit in, in this thinking about giving? It's kind of an obvious question, I think, or an obvious answer. Maybe you're just thinking, she must have a trick answer in there. Well, see, I've upset David now. Okay, so I'll crunch my ice. So most of us will give some money to the church, either in the offering as it comes round or um, through, a, through the bank directly so that nobody sees it go there. We also collect money for special causes. Um, and this is all money that's basically given to God. Not literally given to God because we can't see God, but we give it to God's service and we spend it in God's service. And we never ask people to give money they haven't got. And this is where I, as a minister, always get into trouble because I always say, and we don't ask visitors to pay. You're not paying to be here if we respond because we would like to give money to, to God's work. I'm quite glad you do because it does pay my wages. You don't actually give me onions out of the barn anymore, but you do pay for me out of the money that people bring. But just very briefly, I wonder, what can we give to God that's not money, that's not bread, and that's not cauliflowers and corn and stuff. Carl? Love. Love. Brilliant. Yeah, that's a great one. What else could we give to God? Time. Time. Brilliant. Wendy, thank you. (coughs) Who can sing? (laughs) They don't think they can, apparently. But we could sing for God. We can dance for God. We can use our brains for God, whether it's in the sciences or the arts, or whether you work in an office, whether you're cleaning the kitchen floor, whatever you're doing, you can do that for God. So today we're thinking a little about, bit about harvest, not as fruit and veg, but harvest as what we do and what we can offer to God. So we're going to sing another hymn before the children and young people go out to their groups. Um, For anybody who's visiting, you just go out of that door and follow the crowd. Anybody from naught upwards is very welcome and will be accommodated. And Emma will do a fantastic job. And Anita, I think you're you're crushing today. Is that right, Anita? Yeah. So we're going to sing a hymn. It's a modern hymn that reflects the fact that we are in a city as we celebrate harvest. The harvest of the city we lift to you today.
Our first reading this morning is from Deuteronomy chapter 16, starting at verse 10. You shall keep the festival of weeks to the Lord your God, contributing a freewill offering in proportion to the blessing that you have received from the Lord your God. Rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male and female slaves, the Levites resident in your towns, as well as the strangers, the orphans and the widows who are among you, at the place that the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name. Remember that you were a slave in Egypt and diligently observe these statutes. You shall keep the festival of booths for seven days when you have gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and your winepress. Rejoice during your festival, you and your sons and your daughters, your male and female slaves, as well as the Levites, the strangers, the orphans and the widows resident in your towns. For seven days you shall keep the festival to the Lord your God at the place where the Lord will choose. For the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all your undertakings, and you shall surely celebrate. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, at the festival of unleavened bread, at the festival of weeks, and at the festival of booths. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. All shall give as they are able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. You shall appoint judges and officials throughout your tribes in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, and they shall render just decisions for the people. You must not distort justice. You must not show partiality, and you must not accept bribes, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. Justice, and only justice, you shall pursue so that you may live and occupy the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And then a paraphrase of Nehemiah chapter 3. The people set about rebuilding the walls of the city. The high priest set to work with his fellow priests and rebuilt the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set up its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, and as far as the tower of Hananel, and the men of Jericho built next to them. Some built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set up its doors, its bolts and its bars. Next to them, others made repairs, but certain nobles would not put their shoulders to the work of their lord. Others repaired the old gate. They laid its beams and set up its doors, its bolts and its bars. Next to them, The men, including goldsmiths and perfumers, made repairs. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, the one ruler of half the district of Jerusalem made repairs. Another made repairs opposite his house, and next to him, others repaired another section and the tower of the ovens. Next, the other ruler of half the district of Jerusalem made repairs, along with his daughters. And so it continued, section by section. Others worked side by side. Rulers of districts, Levites, priests, working men, merchants and servants repaired and rebuilt 
the walls. This year, by a bit of a fluke, we're going to be a little tiny weeny bit Jewish in our approach to harvest. We're going to start today an eight-day period of celebrating, marking the harvest season, which will culminate next week in our annual appeal for Operation Agri. That's why I gave you all a piece of paper, which was on your seat, which you can take away with something to think about during the week. The reading from Deuteronomy that we heard identifies and describes three religious festivals that were what our Roman Catholics would term holy days of obligation. Days on which the men of Israel were required to gather together to worship God. These were the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which we better know as Passover, the Feast of Weeks, the Spring Harvest, or as we now know it, Pentecost, and the Feast of Sukkot, or Booths, in the autumn, which coincided with the main harvest. Sukkot is an eight-day festival, and this year it lasts from Wednesday the 4th of October to Wednesday the 11th of October, so it neatly overlaps with our own harvest week. If I told you that we've moved harvest around at least three times in the planning, that is little short of a miracle that anything's come together in terms of coherence. I think it's fair to say that the concept of a holy day of obligation isn't one that we would sign up to. Coming to worship is something voluntary. And yet, for all of that, every church congregation has its own set of services that it deems really important and that somehow feel obligatory in the psyche of that congregation, that group of people. I've been part of quite a lot of congregations down the years 
and every single church that I've been part of, Harvest Festival or Harvest Thanksgiving has been really important. When I was a student back in the 1980s, not so far from Jeff, I discovered he lived in my college's halls at one point, I actually used to go to church in a small Baptist church, not that far from where the Grenfell Tower um, incident happened this year. So lots of high-rise flats, lots of people who didn't have gardens, and some of the children had never seen a sheep or a cow in the, in the flesh. But we still had Harvest Festival. And we do this um, in churches where there are people who work in, in, in agriculture and horticulture, and we do it in churches where nobody does it. And it happens in schools, of course. And we do live in an age when not everybody knows where their food comes from. When I was writing my notes, I remembered that my niece, who was 30 this year, so she would kill me if she could hear this, when she was about seven, her dad brought her to collect her little brother, who'd been visiting my mum, and Matthew said to Carrie, Oh, guess what? Granny made chips today. And Carrie looked at him and said, Don't be stupid. You don't make chips. You buy them in the supermarket. The idea that potatoes could be cut up and fried was just not in her experience. So we are very separated, a lot of us, from the realities of, of the harvest. And I think there's a danger that Harvest Festival is a bit of a nostalgia trip. We have these memories, and I share them, of tables groaning under vegetable marrows and carrots and onions and potatoes and endless green beans, in my recollection, and huge bunches of dahlias and Michaelmas daisies, of bread baked in the shape of a sheaf of wheat, and I have made a few of those over the years, and we sang hymns that were either, either completely rural and agricultural or they had an eschatological element to them that, frankly, is quite scary if you look at what the words say. So for us as city dwellers, most of whom buy our vegetables, fruit and flowers in the supermarkets, there is a risk that Harvest Festival can fall short of what it could be because we're so caught up in the nostalgia of what it used to be. Perhaps we lose that emphasis of celeb real celebration and also of social responsibility. So what do we do? Those of us whose working life is spent in an office or a classroom, a clinic or a laboratory a studio, a salon or a shop? What does harvest mean for us and how do we mark it? And for those who are not able to be in paid employment, perhaps because of age or personal circumstances, how are we to feel valued and able to contribute? These are really challenging questions and I haven't got any good answers for them. But I think there are some thoughts that come out of our Bible readings that help us to think about harvest in a very broad sense. As we ponder that question, what can I give him? What can I give to God? And what actually is the harvest of our labours? The first theme, and probably the most obvious, is worship. Living close to the land, growing their own food and raising their own livestock, 
the people in, of ancient times were acutely aware that their own endeavours, however diligent, couldn't protect them from flood or famine, nor from the possibility of locusts eating the crops or wild animals keeping, killing their sheep. A good harvest was never an excuse for complacency or self-congratulation. The first thing these people had to do was to recognise their interdependence with the natural world and to give thanks to God. And for me, this aspect of the text is a challenge because when I conclude something that I've been working on, when I get to the end of a sermon series, when I got to the end of decluttering my kitchen, when I've cooked a meal for friends, my first instinct is to be quite pleased with myself. Didn't I do well? But actually, what this this scripture reminds us is our first thought is to be able to say, well, thank you, God, because I've been able to do that. It's a slightly different way of approaching it. Whether it's the research for a sermon, whether it was giving things away to charity, whether it was a lovely evening of love and laughter I had just over a week ago with some friends, that's great. But actually, it's not about me. It's something to celebrate and give thanks to God for. And I wonder, maybe the old practice of saying grace at meals is a step on that path of gratitude in the everyday to God, of recognising our part in creation, of being grateful for harvest in its broadest terms. It's quite right that our harvest week begins and ends with worship, specifically the two services, but it's only a tiny part of what we can find from these readings. True worship, as we know, affects the whole of our lives and is embodied in our daily living. The harvest of our labours is, if you like, and emulating the words of Jesus, the fruit by which we're recognised for what we truly are. Jesus said, didn't he, by their fruits you will know them. By our lives you can tell whether we are really living out our faith or not. One hour or an hour and a half on a Sunday morning is meaningless unless it impacts the other 167 hours of the week. And you know that. I don't need to rehearse that. That's just one of those things of which we are all keenly aware. But it isn't always so easy to do. When I was reading through these readings and pondering them, and trying to pull out themes, it actually felt a little bit like dissection or or deconstruction. I was separating out the parts so much that the the whole, the wonder of what this was about, risked being lost along the way. So what I almost felt like I was doing, if I can use a metaphor, is I was taking a cake and I was picking out the fruit and then I was somehow unbaking it and taking out the flour and taking out the sugar and taking out the butter and losing what it was. And actually, what I need to do, having thought those things through, is to put them back together and make the cake. Hopefully, it'll make sense as I go along. So the first ingredient we discover is community. The events that are described here are not privatised or individualised. They involve absolutely everybody. 
The instructions were given to the male heads of households because that is how society was there. But they were expected to be radically inclusive. You didn't just have a nice party for yourself and your wife and your children. And you didn't just invite the people who worked for you. But you had an open-hearted, open-handed hospitality that reached out to people who could easily be overlooked or accidentally excluded. The person down the road who lives on their own. The widow with nobody to invite her. The orphans who have nobody to feed them. The people who are visiting from other places. People who've recently arrived from another land and don't yet know anybody. The all-are-welcome ideal lived out at the very heart of the cycle of worship. A reminder that what we aspire to every day of the year is seen here. And I think it's seen here too, with all our different nationalities, all our different personalities. This is about inclusive welcome. This is about community. One of the ways we do it um, in this part of the city is the Christmas Day lunch, isn't it? Everybody and anybody is welcome to come and share a meal together. So if you can imagine something like that, if you can imagine something like us on a Sunday, only more so. That's kind of the image we get here of community. But true community isn't just about having a nice meal together, though I have to say it's a pretty good start. Community, as imagined here in these readings, is more than that. There is something about equality and justice. And this is a tricky one. We've thought before about the challenges of having equality as a value, perhaps especially in a society where worth and status are so intricately linked. In my imagination, the feast that is imagined in this uh, this reading is a round table. There isn't a head of the table. There isn't a top of the table. And the people sitting around it aren't next to their best friends. They've all kind of been mixed up together. So the high court judge sits next to the shoplifter. The person who has leprosy sits next to the doctor. The MSP sits next to the lad from the East End. And the minister sits next to the addict. Those are all real-life examples, all things that I have encountered in other churches and in ours. There is something about recognising that everybody has equal intrinsic worth because, as I say till I'm blue in the face and you're probably fed up of me saying, individually and collectively, we are made in the image and likeness of God and we are all of equal worth in God's sight. But it's more than that. It's more than just who we sit with. It's the conversations we have and the actions that come from them. Whose voice never actually gets heard? Or whose voice gets heard and then actually start, needs to start listening to other voices because having been heard, they think everything's okay. What do our conversations and what do our experiences reveal about 
justice to us. It's not enough, is it, just to stick a few quid in an envelope for a charity. Justice is demanding. It requires us to consider our attitudes and our actions, to live out what we learn together with and from each other we learn. And humbly and graciously, we need to acknowledge that everybody's voice matters, even a voice that perhaps needs to be challenged or changed. There is so much, isn't there, in the news at the moment that is worrying. Voices saying things that are at best unpalatable and at worst terrifying. But those voices perhaps do need to be heard and then challenged. Challenged by responding, challenged by a different lifestyle. You see, what we have here isn't a nice, polite dinner party. It's actually one of those family meals where sometimes you squabble and fall out a bit, but somehow hold together because deep down you love each other. So we've got worship and we've got community. We have equality and justice, but there's still another ingredient we need to add to the mix, and that is sacrifice. Something we have explored a lot of times together as a church. Recognising it's not about just doing without something to tick a box. It's not about sober October or being a dry athlete or whatever it might be. It's a conscious decision to surrender something. Time, money, possessions, hopes or dreams for the good of another and sometimes specifically God. For some, that sacrifice can mean a total change of lifestyle. For mission partners and ministers, it often means letting go of secure employment and stepping out in faith. But not for everybody. That's not everybody's calling, it's not everybody's choice. Perhaps it is a conscious decision to employ the gifts and skills that we have in a charity or a third sector organisation. Perhaps it is to be a teacher in a difficult school. Perhaps it's a decision to say, no, I won't work in that industry because it's not a good industry to be part of. Whether it's a commitment to give money or time, to offer our abilities, whether in church or society, all of this is part of the harvest of our labours, the gift that we give to God. The paraphrase from Nehemiah, which I'm sure Grace is very grateful I took out most of the hard words, is another image of what this might look like. Nehemiah and the Israelite people have returned to Jerusalem, a city in ruins. And they dared to imagine it rebuilt. They had a dream. And if people caught the vision, or at least most of them did, there's always somebody, isn't there? There's always someone who just, nah, I'm not getting involved, and, and there was in this story. But most of them just got involved. The high priest began, and other people said, yep, and we'll do the next bit, and we'll do the next bit. And it's an incredible image, isn't it? They're the civic leaders and the goldsmiths and the perfume makers and the intellectuals and the religious leaders, there are women and men working side by side. 
Some do a big bit, some do a little bit, some do a bit outside their front door, some do a gate. But what a wonderful image we have. All these people get committed to a common task. And all these constructs about who has higher status doesn't matter. Actually, you're all there with your hammer or your trowel or whatever it would be, working together to create something beautiful for God. I have to say, the ancient Israelites knew how to party. They could have a celebration that went on for a week. Tables groaning under food, wine flowing freely, music going on and dancing. Of course, they never quite got there. They never quite were fully inclusive. They never quite were fair and just in everything. Because human greed and sin, human frailty and finitude got in the way. And yet we are left with beautiful images signposting to us the heavenly banquet, the horizon towards which we live our lives. So whether it's that banquet at a round table where everybody sits together, or whether it's that city where people stand shoulder to shoulder, side by side, working. These are amazing images for us to hold on to. And so as we mark our harvest season, as we recognise, name and offer to God the harvest of our own labours, we are encouraged and I hope inspired to continue to stand together, side by side, strengthening community, working for inclusion equality and justice, building up the work of God's sovereignty in this place. And every now and then, as we will do in a couple of weeks, taking time out to enjoy each other's company in celebration and fun. And so we're just going to take a couple of minutes of quiet to think about that, to think about what we can offer to God of who we are and what we are. And then we'll remain seated as we sing our next hymn as a rededication of ourselves to God.
over the past few weeks, Katrina has been encouraging us to think of ourselves as co-creators with God. So in our prayers for others today, we're invited to think of ourselves as co-creators with God of the answers to our prayers. To think of ourselves as makers of justice and peace. So today we're invited to pray with our eyes open. On the screen, some images will appear, which I hope will help us to focus on how we might be involved in responding to the needs of some of the people that we're praying for. We live on a beautiful planet. This is our home. But so many of our neighbours who share this planet home with us live in poverty because of the ravages of war or climate change or human greed. This morning we pray for those who lack the most basic things of life, clean water, and sanitation. And we pray for those who have dedicated their lives to providing these necessities for others. We pray for BMS workers around the world, and especially this morning, we pray for Tim and Linda Darby, who work with BMS in Uganda where they install cleaner toilet facilities that keep children safe from disease. But how can we help to be the answer to our prayers? We can educate ourselves about the issues of clean water and sanitation and about the work of BMS through resources like Worth Saving, the BMS Creation Care Initiative. We could join the birthday scheme. The birthday scheme's a great thing, and in our church it's Joan who organises it for us. So that on our birthday we receive a card from Joan and from BMS. But we give a gift rather than receive one. And that gift of money goes to help people who need clean water and sanitation and so many other needs around the world. We can respond generously to next week's Operation Agri appeal. This year, all our donations will go to provide clean water and sanitation for marginalised Tamil people in northern Sri Lanka. They've come through a terrible civil war. Many of the children are orphaned. Most of the families have been displaced. We can respond with open hearts 
to their need. This morning we pray for those in our own society who are homeless. Some who sleep rough, but many others who live precariously, sleeping on other people's sofas or in bed and breakfast accommodation. We pray for those who have dedicated their lives to supporting and empowering people who are homeless. And especially today, we pray for the work of Glasgow City Mission. But how can we help God answer our prayers? We can educate ourselves about homelessness. Glasgow City Mission invites any of us who want to find out more to be part of one of their first Friday tours. They'll show us round their city centre project and they'll give us the chance to ask questions about homelessness in our own city and about how we could get involved. We could find out about their work with cookery classes that helps everyone who has been living on the street to discover how they can make food cheaply and healthily and sustain themselves when finally they get accommodation. Or we can respond with generosity to next month's appeal for Glasgow City Mission. They suggest that perhaps we could raise money by holding a lunch in our own home and using some of Glasgow City Mission's recipe cards to make a meal for friends and then asking our friends to make a donation. Or they suggest we could take a packed lunch to work for a week and donate the money we would have spent on buying lunch to the work of Glasgow City Mission. Or we could volunteer. City Mission depends on over 200 volunteers giving their time and their skills to help support homeless people. And you can't even begin to measure that impact. Perhaps you have time, or perhaps you have a skill that you could offer. We live on a beautiful planet. It is our home. But so many of our neighbours live in poverty. This morning, let us resolve to be the answer to their prayers and ours. Amen.
generous God, who in love has entrusted this beautiful planet to us and who calls us to work with you in caring for it. Take our gifts of money. Take the gifts of our love and of our actions and employ them all to bring that hope to reality. Amen. Come, you thankful people, come raise the song of Harvest Home. harvest in whom all will ultimately be safely gathered and renewed send us from here encouraged and inspired to live the values we profess and to labor diligently in your service today and always